Uh, If you're new here today, my name is Fred. I'm one of the pastors. I'll be preaching this morning. I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 John. If you don't have a Bible with you, don't panic. We'll put the words on the screen behind me. Uh, Before I get into the Word, just uh, two quick announcements. This week, uh, we have new small groups starting, and so we have small groups that are happening on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, and they're all different studies, and so if you want to be a part of those, you can go to our website, click on the small groups tab, you'll see the options and have the opportunity to get signed up. Really encourage you to check those out. There's some great groups getting ready to happen. We'd love to have you be a part. And then secondly, today is the last day to register for the men's retreat that is happening next weekend. So men, if you were intending to uh, go, please get signed up today so that we have um, an accurate count and are ready to rock. With that, we are in 1 John, not to be confused with the Gospel of John. 1 John is one of the very last books that you'll come to in the New Testament. Uh, The same John who wrote the Gospel of John, at least according to most scholars and commentators, uh, wrote these three letters. And I say according to most because you'll see when we get into this letter, John does not identify himself. Uh, That's kind of unique in the New Testament letters. Most letters begin with a greeting where the author identifies himself. We don't see that in 1 John, uh, but there's good reason to believe that this is the Apostle John. And so um, that's the perspective we're going to come from today. Uh, This is a new series that we're beginning. We're going to go through this entire book, and you're going to see as we go through 1 John that uh, this is a letter that John wrote to build up the church in the first century and to encourage them to to really do some self-examination. There's there's sort of this threefold test in 1 John that we're going to see that that John is encouraging believers to self-examine and see if you are truly in the faith. And the first part of that test is theological. Do you believe the right things about Jesus? The second is moral. Has your belief in Jesus transformed your thinking, your morality, what you you view as right and wrong? And then thirdly, social. There's a social aspect to our faith, and that is, do we love the people around us according to the gospel? And so that's kind of where John's going to take us throughout his book. I think you'll enjoy this series. I'm certainly looking forward to it. Today we're going to begin where John begins. I'm going to read chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. After we read those, we'll pray and get into the message together. Let's look at verse one. It says, what was from the beginning, we have, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that life was revealed and we have seen it and we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard, we also declare to you so that you may also have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Would you pray with me as we consider God's word? Father, as we begin this this look at a new book today, as we consider the words of 1 John, God, would you give us not only a desire to be in your word, but a desire to obey what it says? And help us, help us to be open to the self-examination that we are invited into in this book. Help us to really look in the mirror and, and say, 
am I believing the right things? And if so, how is that affecting my life? How is that affecting my behavior and my thoughts? How is that affecting my love for other people? Fathers, John is often known as the, the apostle of love. I pray that these next few weeks we would grow in love. Love for your word, love for you, and love for each other. Help us to become the people you created us to be, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. John begins with the gospel. He begins with not only the importance of the gospel, but the effect of the gospel and how, how this gospel ought to lead us into fellowship with one another and with the Lord and increasing joy. And so today, as, as we begin, as begin John's letter, I want to do the same. I want to consider the gospel. What is this gospel that John is speaking of. And so if you have the handout in front of you that we gave you on the way in, let's go ahead, fill in some blanks together. The first thing you'll see on the handout is this. This gospel was from the beginning. This gospel was from the beginning. Again, it's interesting that John does not begin by identifying himself. He begins in a very similar way to how he begins his gospel. I'm gonna do something in a second that might get a little bit confusing because we are in 1 John 1 through 4. I wanna look at the gospel of John, chapter one, verses one through four, where John says this. He says, in the beginning was the word. Let me just pause. He started the letter with what was from the beginning. He starts his gospel with the words, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. We know, if you read the rest of the first chapter of John's gospel, that when he says the word, he's referring explicitly to Jesus. And so you could also read this, in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. John loves to, to refer to Jesus and, and to refer to uh, the gospel as light as opposed to darkness. And of course, that's a very familiar way to explain what is good or to refer to what is good, to compare light and darkness but, but John says what's unique uh, about this light is that he is the light of all men. He says that Jesus, from the beginning, was involved in creating everything that is. And specifically, John wants us to know that this gospel, the message of Jesus' plan to redeem us, by coming, living a perfect life, dying on the cross for our sins, and rising from the grave on the third day to give us eternal life. That's the gospel that he's talking about. This gospel was formed, this plan was formed before time. Some people will teach that God does not know what is going to happen in the future 
and that God is merely reacting to the world as it unfolds. The Bible presents a very different view of God. The Bible presents a view of God that knows all things from beginning to end. The Bible tells us that God's plan to redeem through the sending of his son was a plan that was, that was formed before there was even a need, before the creation of everything that, that is in our universe, everything that, that we experience, that we touch, that we see, that is a part of our universe was created by God in the beginning. And there was nothing that is, that was created apart from Jesus. So this gospel is, is not a, it's, it's not a reaction to man's sin. It was always the plan. The plan was always for God to redeem mankind even before he needed redeemed. The plan was always from the very beginning to save us through the sending of his son. And so when you believe the gospel, you are not believing something that was made up 2,000 years ago or something that even came to be 2,000 years ago. You are uniting yourself with the God who was and is and always will be from beginning to end and even before time began. This gospel was from the beginning. John roots not only his letter, but his, his gospel in the gospel of John in this timeless truth. He, he, he is convinced that this message that he and the other apostles have been entrusted with is not a time-bound manifestation. It's not something that just recently came to be, but it's something that always has been, that God has been progressively revealing throughout human history. What this means for us is if we can, if, and it's hard to get your head around this because we are time-bound creatures. We know nothing except for existence within time. And to think outside of that is essentially impossible. To think outside of time uh, is something that our brains don't seem even capable of. But for God, who has existed from eternity past into eternity future, who has planned this gospel to take place before he even created the world, the good news for us is that God knows everything from beginning to end and nothing that ever happens to you or I comes as a surprise to him. Nothing that it, listen, there, there are things that come as a great surprise to us. There are things that, that really threaten to shake and rattle our entire existence. There are things that happen to us that that, that erode the stability of life that we thought we had, whether it's a diagnosis or a loss of a job or a loss of a close loved one or the breakup of a relationship. There are so many things that could happen that make it seem to us as if our world is out of control. Make it seem to us as if, boy, it would have been good if somebody knew this was going to happen. The good news that John begins his letter with here 
is that the God who was, is, always will be, knows all things, is never caught off guard, is never taken by surprise. Not only did he plan this gospel from the beginning, but he planned your life. And, and when things happen that surprise us, it's good to remember that they're not surprising God. This gospel was from the beginning. The next thing you'll see on the handout is that this gospel was revealed by God and witnessed by many. How did the gospel come to be known? How do we know? Last week we celebrated the resurrection of Jesus. How do we know these things happened? We know because God revealed his plan of redemption. God revealed the gospel and that gospel was witnessed by many. This is how John says it. He says, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes and what we have observed and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that life was revealed and we have seen it and we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. Here's the good news about God and his, here's some good news about God and his nature. He, he is a God who desires to re reveal himself. God is always self-revealing. He is always making himself known. He is inviting people, all of creation, into the knowledge of him. Imagine, imagine a world where, that is controlled by a sovereign God, yet that God cannot be known. Imagine a world where we have to, we have to create a vision of God in our own minds because he has not revealed himself. That is not the world we live in. We live in a world where God is constantly revealing himself. John says, what, we, what we've heard, seen with our eyes, and touched with our hands. I love the progression of the testimony there. I love how, how we, we move from, so we have five senses, right? Generally, we, we agree on that. We have five senses. These three senses are often thought of as the higher senses. You know, what you hear with your ears is somewhat reliable, but it's probably the least reliable of the three. I mean, all of us have thought we heard things that it turned out we didn't hear. You're sitting at home, your spouse is in the other room, or when your kids are in the other room, or somebody else, you know, so you, you think you hear them say something, and you go, what? Huh? And they're like, what are you talking about? Would you just say something? No, I didn't say anything. Oh, I thought I heard you say something. We've all had this experience where we thought we heard something. And so our, our ears are, are certainly beneficial for observing reality, but they can be deceiving. We don't always hear what we think we've heard. And so if you are going to build the truth of the gospel on what is heard only, it's not as firm of a case as if, as we have here, we move on to the other senses. But nonetheless, John heard the gospel. We know of 
at least one occasion. John was one of Jesus' closest disciples. He was one of what's often referred to in the Gospels as the inner circle. Jesus had 12 disciples, but then he had three guys, Peter, James, and John, who uh, were his inner circle. They were the ones, there are a handful of occasions where Jesus breaks off from the larger group of the disciples and he just takes these three with him. And one of those instances is the transfiguration where they go up on the mountain Jesus is transfigured before their eyes and they actually heard the audible voice of God the Father say, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. So John not only heard the words of Jesus, which I think he's referring to, but he heard the word of, he heard the voice, the sound of God the Father. He heard but hearing can be, can be a little bit off. We know that. So he says, and we have seen with our eyes, slightly more reliable than our hearing is our vision. It's one thing to, to think you heard something, but to see it, to see you. We, we, we largely trust what we see with our own eyes. That's not to say that there can't be times when our, when our sight is deceptive as well, but I can look around and I can observe what is real with my eyes. I can observe reality. I, I can see who is here. I can, I can see the number of people that are here. I can see the color of the chairs. There are a lot of things that I know to be real simply because I see them. But John doesn't stop with that because, again, our eyes aren't perfect. How many times, you know, there's... Um, remember that stupid dress that like broke the internet a couple years ago where we couldn't agree what color it was? Was it white with blue stripes or was it, I don't know, it was weird. And there was literally people that saw it one way and they were fighting with people who saw it the other way. We can disagree over what we see with our own eyes. And so John goes on to say, he says, not only have we heard, not only have we seen with our eyes, we have observed and we have touched with our hands. That's probably the most reliable sense that we have. What we can touch with our own hands. We can fall for optical illusions. We can think we see things one way and turns out in reality they're another way, but, but rarely do, do our hands deceive us. Either way, John is saying, look, this gospel has been revealed it has been revealed in a way that we could hear it, that we could see it, that we could touch it. It is, it is, a, is as established in reality as anything possibly could be. We have observed, we have touched with our hands. He, and he says in verse two, that life was revealed. Why were we able to hear it, see it, touch it? Because God revealed it. God made it known. God made known this gospel. He could, have, he could have sacrificed his son on our behalf in secret. He could have. And just asked us to believe it. He could have revealed to any, human, any one human being, hey, write this down and tell it to the whole world without anybody knowing, without anybody seeing, without any witnesses, I've sacrificed my son Jesus to, to be a, a sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. 
and he is risen from the grave on the third day. Now go tell everybody. He didn't do that. He did it in public. He did it in the observable realm. He did it in a very specific place at a very specific time in front of a very specific group of people. And that's why today you can go to Jerusalem and, and you can go and see many of these places where the events of Jesus's final week of life took place. And you can go and you can see and you can touch and you can observe. We don't get to see Jesus crucified, nor should, nor should we want to really, but the, the point is, is that this is an actual part of human history. This is not some mythological thing that has taken place as so many religions are based on, but this is actual history because God has revealed the gospel and he has caused it to be witnessed by many people. That's why John Stott says, for the Christian message is neither a philosophical speculation nor a tentative suggestion nor a modest contribution to the religious thought, but a confident affirmation by those whose experience and commission have qualified them to make it. They were there. They were witnesses. They were witnesses of what God revealed to many people. Next, this gospel is being declared by Jesus' followers. It's the next thing you see on the handout. This gospel is being declared by Jesus' followers. Not only in the first century, but for the last 2,000 years, Jesus' followers have continued to, to, to declare the gospel message for all to hear. John says, what we have seen and heard, we also declare, declare to you. That's verse three. He also said in verse two, this won't be on the screen because I'm moving backwards. He says, we have seen it and we testify and declare to you the eternal life. There's two types of declaration that John mentions here. The declaration of testimony, we have seen it. We were witnesses, we were there. We, we are testifying to, to what we have witnessed. And then there's declaration, both of which have a certain authority. Declaration is making known what is true. It is declaring the gospel. It is making known that God has revealed himself. He has revealed his plan of redemption in his son. And he has done this in front of many witnesses. What we have seen and heard, we also declare to you. For 2,000 years, this is what has been happening. And you know the gospel today because Jesus' followers have been declaring it for 2,000 years. And not just a few of them, but a lot of them. The gospel has, has covered much of the earth simply through the declaration of those who follow Jesus. This was, this was the early, the, the, those early Christians in the first century. This was their mission to take the gospel to the known world. That mission continues today as we want to take the gospel to places where Jesus is not known. That's 
why we partner with people like the Woodleys who are serving in Papua New Guinea. That's why we partner with other missionaries around the world because there are places you and I can't get to every day. There's places, there are places you and I can't get to from week to week. And so we need partners. We need to come alongside of those who are declaring the gospel in places that we can't get to. But what a sad reality it would be if we were supporting people to declare the gospel at the far corners of the earth and not declaring the gospel right here where we live. We have an obligation. We have a responsibility. And we also have a privilege to be the ones to declare the gospel in this generation and in this place. Don't be fooled into thinking that, that Western Pennsylvania does not need a declaration of the gospel. There are many people, there are an increasing number of people around you today who do not know the gospel of Jesus Christ. They don't. They don't know it. They don't know how to be saved by the death and resurrection of Jesus. They may have heard bits and pieces, some of them have not heard any of it at all. I think it would shock us to know the number of people who have never set foot in a church, who have never had somebody come and share the gospel to them, who live right here where we live. They're not just in far off lands. They're here. So what's God's plan to make sure they hear the gospel? It's us. We are God's plan. We are the one tasked with declaring. We, have, we are to testify to what we have experienced and what we have witnessed, just as John is doing in the first century, we must do today, and we are to declare, we are to make known the message of the gospel. You and I, we have this incredible news that through Jesus' death and resurrection, we can, be, we can have all of our sins forgiven. We can have the gift of eternal life. We can be reconciled back to God, reconciled to one another, as we're gonna look at here in a minute, and that we can live in increasing joy because of what Jesus has done to save us. What a shame to keep that kind of good news to ourselves. Friday night, I asked the guys in Sarver, uh, for a show of hands. How many, I'm gonna do the same here today. How many of you get headaches on a fairly regular basis? Raise your hand, please. Okay, uh, decent, enough, enough here that this will work, I think. If, if you were to be given a cure for headaches, a pill that you had to take one time that was not made by Pfizer or Johnson and Johnson. It's natural. It's, it's, it's harmless, okay? It'll do nothing except for cure your headaches. All you have to do is take this pill one time. Your headaches will be gone forever. Would you keep that kind of miracle to yourself? Or would you be eager to share that information with other people? Would you not... Would you not be eager next time you hear somebody say, oh man, I have such a headache. I keep getting these headaches. I have great news for you. There's a cure. And yet every day of our lives, people are moaning over the effects of sin in their lives. 
And we have the remedy. We have the gospel of Jesus. Now, that's a simplified illustration. Obviously, it's not an exact parallel. But how much, how much better is the good news that we have that we're not just relieving a, don't get me wrong, headaches can be awful, but we're relieving in perspective what is a relatively minor ailment. We're talking about the forgiveness of sins forever. We're talking about eternal life. We're talking about being reunited with the God who created the universe. Don't you want to share that good news? Don't you want people who are lost in sin to know that there is a Savior? We must declare the gospel. We must wisely and prayerfully share the good news of Jesus Christ with the people among whom God has placed us. There's 150,000 people within 20 minutes of where you sit right now, most of whom do not have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Don't, don't tell me you're bored. <laughs> don't tell me you don't know what to do. Don't, uh, we have a mission, and it's a big one, and it's an important one, and we must declare. We are Jesus' followers in this generation. If you don't do it, if we don't do it, who's going to do it? Next, we've got two more. I'll finish these last two on the handout. The go this gospel leads to fellowship. This gospel was from the beginning. This gospel was revealed by God and witnessed by many. This gospel is being declared by Jesus' followers. This gospel, John tells us, leads to fellowship. In verse three, he says, what we have seen and heard, we also declare, declare to you so that... The purpose of this declaration is about to be revealed here in verse three, so that we may also, so that you may also have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. One of the results of the gospel is fellowship. Fellowship first and foremost with God, because sin has separated us from God in our pre-regenerate state before we have received Jesus's gift of forgiveness and salvation, we are not in fellowship with God. We are separated from him. We are at odds with him. The Bible actually says that before Christ, we are enemies of God. But because of the gospel, because of what Jesus has done, we are reconciled to him, we have fellowship with him, and we have fellowship with one another. And that fellowship is so sweet on both fronts. Fellowship with God is an incredible thing. People, people say like, man, wouldn't it have been awesome to be, to, to be alive at the time Jesus walked to the earth? And I agree, that would have been incredible, right? It would have been awesome. But you know what else is awesome? To be alive today and to be walking with Jesus. To know him in this generation. To get to see him work. To get to walk with him through, through these turbulent times 
is pretty awesome. To know God, to have real fellowship with him. This, we're, we're talking about something that actually exists. Believers in Christ have true fellowship with him. It's not just something that we make up. We know him. If I were to ask, if I were to go around the room and say, if you are a believer in Christ, what led you to become a believer in Christ? Most of us would not say, well, somebody, some, somebody explained to me the evidence for creation versus evolution. And I thought, you know, there must be a God. And I read the Bible and the Bible said, oh, okay, well, that, that God sent Jesus. And that's why I believe the gospel. Or most people wouldn't say, you know, I believe the gospel because, um, you know, my parents really believed the gospel. And that was just convincing enough to me. Most of us would say, we believe the gospel because we've met Jesus. He's, he's made himself known to us. He has in some way revealed himself and there was a moment where we went, dang, this is real. Jesus really does care about me. He really does love me. He really does want to forgive my sins and bring me into a relationship with him. We, that's fellowship. That's relationship with God. And we not only have that with God, but we have that with each other. John says, Part of the purpose of him writing this is so that they may have fellowship. John is, John is wanting to increase fellowship between he and his ministry co-workers and the people who are on the receiving end of this letter. There's something so sweet about fellowship among believers. It's one of the reasons I'm up here this morning asking you to get into a small group because you know, Sunday mornings are great. I mean, we, you probably say hi to a few people. You might even run into somebody that you haven't seen for a while. There's, there's fellowship here, but it's like a drop in the bucket. I mean, su- Sunday mornings are, just aren't really set up for fellowship, and, but small groups are. Small groups are an opportunity to feed off one another, to, to get to know other believers, to be encouraged by other people, to carry each other's burdens. I look forward to my small group because there's fellowship, true fellowship. And sometimes that, that, that fellowship, not sometimes, I, I think all the time, I have closer fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ than with blood relatives, unless those blood relatives are brothers and sisters in Christ, which is really awesome. But I have more in common with people who are following Jesus than with people who aren't. This is the fellowship that we enjoy with one another. And that's why John is writing, so that, so that we may have fellowship with each other and with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. Lastly, the gospel incre- this gospel increases joy. This gospel increases joy. John says, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So John sits down to write a letter and he tells us in the first four verses that he's writing this for the sake of fellowship and for the sake of increasing joy. John's ministry as an apostle of building up the church is increasing his joy. And we find that for all of us, life in the gospel, life as 
as gospel missionaries in, in the world that we live in does the same thing. It increases joy. It increases joy. The, the longer you walk with Jesus and the more familiar you become with the good news of the gospel, the greater joy that you experience. And that's why believers so often when they come to the end of their lives and they know that the end is near, express not fear of death, but anticipation of the joy that is about to become reality. Because the gospel increases joy. As we follow Christ, we are not, we're not called to some sort of self-hatred, um, self, um, you know, re restriction of our passions and of our desires, but rather as we follow Christ, our desires and our passions become molded to the gospel and we find that there our joy increases dramatically. It's not the things of the world that get us excited so much anymore. It's the things of the kingdom. It's, it's not... It's not the joy of getting a new car. It's not the joy of going on a vacation that we've been thinking about for a long time. Those things have some joy, but they, they tend to pale in comparison to the joy of the gospel. True joy is when somebody that we've been praying for comes to believe in Jesus. True joy is when we see that the gospel is transforming our own lives. True joy is when we see the, that our fellowship with one another is increasing. John said we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. What would it look like what would it take for your joy to be complete through gospel ministry? What's going to give you joy in the next 10, 20, 30 years of your life? If you say, well, I want this house, um, I want to have this many kids or grandkids or I, I got to get this promotion, you you may get some of those things and the coinciding joy that comes with it. But you may not. A lot of those things aren't in your control. A lot of those things can be taken from you. But if you make it your aim to increase in joy in the gospel, if you make it your aim to say, 10 years from now, I hope to be a lot closer to Jesus. 10 years from now, I hope to have influenced this many people to follow Christ. 10 years from now, I, I hope to be 10 years closer to being with Jesus forever. Then you'll never be disappointed. That joy is unshakable. That joy the world cannot take away. As we start this letter, like I said, there's gonna be some looking in the mirror there's gonna be some challenges. Do I believe the right things? Am I, am I, is my heart bent towards the right things? Am I loving people the way the gospel commands me to love? Before we get into all of that, 
let me just remind you of the firm foundation of this eternal gospel that we have, that God has revealed in human history so that we might know, so that we might have fellowship, so that our joy might increase. Over these next few weeks, I hope that you'll dive deep into this book with us. And, and in doing so, you'll, you'll dive deep into your own soul and allow your, allow your desires and your passions to be molded by the beauty of the gospel. And in doing so, I think you'll find great joy in walking with Jesus in this generation. Would you pray with me? Fathers, we come to get to know you here today and to, to grow in our understanding of the gospel that Jesus Christ has died for our sins, that we, that we have eternal life in you, and that though the things of this world might be fading, what is not fading, but rather what is increasing is our joy in you. Father, there are no doubt people here today whose joy in the things of the world has been eroded this week. There, there are no doubt people here who are just struggling because what, what they counted on to make them happy, what they counted on to make them content has not come through. And for those people, God, would you just point them to the gospel? <laughs> And just point them to this firm foundation that we have in Jesus Christ. The world could never take that away and give us confidence in you. God, for, and for the rest of us who may not be experiencing that kind of struggle this week, um, but nonetheless are tempted to trust in the things, the work of our own hands, are trusted to, uh, tempted to trust in the things of this world, May our hope be in this gospel. May our joy be in this God. May our dreams be formed by this gospel. And help us to grow in our trust in what Jesus has done on our behalf. And as we do that, God, would you use us, your people, to declare, to witness to, and to testify to the, the beauty of the gospel in this generation so that those 150,000 people within 20 miles of here would, would know, would know that Jesus is real, that Jesus has died so that they could have eternal life, and would they throw themselves at the foot of the cross and embrace the beauty of the gospel of Jesus. Use us to do your work to build your kingdom, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.